This episode is sponsored in part by Adobe XD, how designers UX. Learn more at adobe.com slash XD. It's time for Brand of Brothers. My name is Doug Berger, and I will be your tour guide through this branding expedition. I'm excited to share with you the latest in brand refreshes, a history lesson, wisdom nuggets, and our guest Alex Lang pays us a visit. Let's get branding. Brand updates. Let's talk about our latest favorite brand refresh. Well, first off, it's not super new, but it's still new. Back in September, Maserati unveiled their rebrand, and to the untrained eye, one might think the adjustments are quite subtle. They wouldn't be entirely wrong. However, the logo now reflects the finely tuned and a bit more accessible offerings than previous iterations. I'm kidding about it being accessible. The newest model starts at just over $200,000 US. So yeah, the lines are crisp, the points are sharp, and the typography is more legible than ever. In case you're having trouble envisioning it, the logo is comprised of a trident centered above the logo type, which is a slightly forward-leaning script that emotes speed and stability. And of course, you can see it for yourself in our Instagram feed at Live and on our website, brandshowlive.com. This new logo debuted on the new MC20. It's their newest turbocharged sports car. You can pre-order it in time for fall of next year. Um, It's sleeker, it's narrower, and more graphically precise. The logo, of course, not the car. The line weights are well-balanced and consistent. We're talking mechanical perfection, and the word mark is an equally complementing and contrasting visualization which can certainly be described as smart and fresh. Before I begin gushing too much, let's talk about how this logo came to be. According to Maserati, the brand was born in Bologna, Italy in 1914. About six years later, the first incarnation of the logo was crafted. In fact, one of the Maserati brothers got the idea from a family friend, the Marquis Diego de Sterlich. We first see this logo in the wild on their first fully in-house designed and assembled vehicle, the Tipo 26. Of course, 26 was probably pronounced in Italian and I don't really speak Italian. So, okay. Um, Of course, in Roman mythology, the trident is associated with Neptune, a powerful god who symbolizes dominion over the sea. Well, Bologna being quite a ways away from the Adriatic Sea, I don't know, maybe an hour, hour and a half, well, possibly even less than a Maserati, right? Anyhow, the idea here is about owning your dominion wherever you go. In fact, the company moved even further inland in 1940 or so to Modena. However, the ethos persisted and still persists to this day, I guess. The meaning goes beyond the trident and deeper with the Maserati signature color palette. For instance, when we see the trident juxtaposed on the deep navy blue, we aren't just reminded of Neptune's domain over the sea, but also his enduring strength. Sometimes we find the logo on a white or silver color field meant to reflect domination and perfection. Finally, The red speaks to its bold, fiery power, delivering unparalleled performance from Rome to Florence to anywhere around the world, really. So if I had to give this beautiful update a rating, I'm going to have to give it a where precision meets performance. 
How would I make it better? Well, the typeface is almost perfection. My biggest hangup is it kind of feels like a font and not so much like a logo type. I, I just wish it had a bit more character. As for the glyph, it's almost too rigid. I would love to see some more curves and softened edges. I'm, I'm a huge fan of contrasting and complementing elements. I feel like the glyph could use a bit more of both. However, I must confess, up until now, I've never really been a Maserati guy, but these new lines are even on display with their newest model. Thankfully, I will never have to worry about plunking down a chunk of change for one of these bad boys. I'm pretty sure my wife would have something to say about that. You know, like, how are we going to pay the bills? <laughs> okay, next topic. Favorite fonts. So, is it an oldie but a goodie or something fresh from the typographic oven? Well, since it was made this century, we're going to classify it as new. And since it was designed by Jonathan Heffler and Tobias Freire Jones, it's fucking amazing. We're talking about Sentinel. For my type nerds out there, maybe you've wanted an italic or oblique in a Clarendon typeface, or perhaps you wanted more weights or better legibility with your slab serifs. Well, they've taken the best ingredients and baked us something so delectable. According to Heffler and Company's website, typography.com, the first slab serifs were designed to be oddities. It was their intention to be eye-catching, to be novelties amidst the world's conventional book types, never mind that some of these faces treated different letters inconsistently or had inherent qualities that limited the size of their families. These were eccentricities, and to a novelty typeface, eccentricity is strength. Two centuries later, their legacy includes three beloved species of typeface that are handsome, popular, and maddeningly difficult to use. Each is marred by a crippling deficiency, a situation inspiring Heffler and Jones to create Sentinel. A slab serif whose capital O is close to a perfect circle is called a geometric. Its capital H will have horizontal and vertical strokes that appear the same weight, a policy that's consistently applied throughout the entire alphabet. If the strokes are inflated by a certain weight, it becomes impossible to create a matching lowercase. The structural complexity of the lowercase a, e, and g limits how heavy the design can go before these characters close in on themselves. The geometric that maxes out at the bold weight can only achieve a black by compromising the underlying design, and in a typeface characterized by rigid geometries, these kinds of concessions can be glaringly obvious. An early compromise was the introduction of contrast, which allowed horizontal strokes to remain thinner than vertical ones. This approach which made it possible to create lowercase letters and extreme weights, proved to be an attractive motif among the capitals as well, and the resulting style became popular under the name Antique. A cousin of the Antique is the Clarendon, which adds rounded brackets that connect its serifs and stems, a useful feature that gives bolder faces the appearance of extra weight. These brackets are consequently a liability in lighter weights, where they begin to overpower the letters themselves, and in counterpoint to geometrics that lack heavier weights, Clarendons rarely have lighter ones. Their absence of a book weight makes Clarendons useless for text, a fate sealed by a greater problem which they share with antiques. Neither have italics. 
Sentinel was designed to address the many shortcomings of the classical slab serif, unbound by traditions that deny italics, by technologies that limit its design, or by ornamental details that restrict its range of weights, Sentinel is a fresh take on this useful and lovely style, offering for the first time a complete family that's serviceable for both text and display. From the antique style, it borrows a program of contrasting thicks and thins, but trades that style's frumpier mannerisms for more attractive contemporary details. It improves on both Clarendon's and geometrics by including a complete range of styles, six weights from light to black that are consistent in both style and quality. Planned from the outset to flourish in small sizes as well as large, Sentinel contains features like short-ranging figures that make it a dependable choice for text, and most mercifully, it includes thoughtfully designed italics across its entire range of weights. Ooh, it must be time for Haiku Review. Okay, so here we go. Many different weights. Its diversity is great. This slab is top rate. No matter the look, the typeface for any nook, italic to book. And those, my friends, are our Sentinel 575s. As always, see the typeface for yourself in our Instagram feed at Branch Live or on our website, branchalive.com. Of course, you can snag this beautiful family over at typography.com. Logo History Lesson. Way back in the 1900s, before Adobe Illustrator or even the Mac, or even before we reappropriated the term branding from ranchers, there were the true pioneers of modern graphic design. Today, we're talking about the Bass Ale logo. This identity fascinates me to no end. The earliest known trademark is said to be that of the Bass Ale's red triangle, which happens to be depicted on beer bottles, and of all places, in Edward Manet's 1882 painting, A Bar at the Follies Berger. Uh, of course, that's probably not what the original title is, um, but I don't speak French. So anyhow, established in 1777 by William Bass in England, the Bass Brewery grew into one of the largest beer companies in the United Kingdom by the end of the 19th century, with over 1.5 million barrels of beer produced annually. Bass was even eventually included in the inaugural FT30 index established by the London Stock Exchange in 1935, signifying the brewery as one of the top 30 companies in all of the UK. Of course, this brand is a thing of legends. Why? Well, I'll tell you. The generally accepted story is that after the passing of the Trademark Registration Act of 1875, when applications to apply for trademark registrations opened on January 1st, 1876, a Bass employee was allegedly sent to wait overnight outside the registrar's office the day before in order to be the first in line to file an application to register a trademark the next morning. And that is why the company has trademark number one. There's actually no evidence for this story, but it is certainly true that a label with the triangle on it and the words Bass and Company Pale Ale is indeed the UK's trademark number one, and to that end, is listed as having been the first to be registered on New Year's Day in 1876. So at least that part of it is true. Oh, 
You know how I mentioned it was in a Manet painting? It's also in a bunch of Picassos as well. Um, oh yeah, and it's mentioned in James Joyce's Ulysses. Yeah, crazy, right? So the logo's distinct color and the compelling, even mesmerizing nature of Bass branding are celebrated in chapter 14 of Joyce's epic novel. Let me read you a bit. During the past four minutes or thereabouts, he has been staring hard at a certain amount of number one bass bottled by William Bass and Company at Burton-on-Trent, which happened to be situated amongst a lot of others right opposite to where he was, and which was certainly calculated to attract anyone's remark on account of its scarlet appearance. Pretty cool, right? Okay, so while the red triangle itself persists, the logo has been considerably simplified to only include logo type that references the original script face in which the name Bass was typeset. Along with the underline conspicuously placed beneath the ass part of Bass, the updated logo type is beefier, as is the underline, which is no longer seemingly emphasizing the bottom end of the logo type. This refreshing update was completed in 2014 by Froelich and Kent. You can see the original and the update over on our Instagram feed at Brancho Live. And of course, as always, it's on our website, BranchoLive.com. Inquiring Minds. Before I begin, I just wanted to say thanks for everyone sending in questions. If you have one, feel free to DM through social media, email them to hello at BranchoLive.com, or leave a message by calling US area code 650. 2657350. Okay, our first question comes from Laura asking, how do you know when a design is complete? Well, there there's a complicated answer and and a simple answer. Let's start with the complicated one. Once you have exhausted all the possibilities for the communications problem your design is solving, you choose the ideal answer, right? So now you elevate the design by perfecting spacing and margin, creating a visual balance between all the elements from graphics to type and developing tonal harmony. But the simpler answer to when do you know it's complete is when you have ticked all the checkboxes. That's when you know you're done. For instance, will this resonate with our audiences? Check. Does the design reflect the message? Check. Is the tone coherent, cohesive, and consistent? Check. Is this good enough to go in my portfolio? Check. If you can affirmatively answer those four questions, then you know the design is complete. Okay, our next question comes from Blake. He asks, is there a formula for pricing? So this is a tricky one. Everyone has different methods for pricing their work. Frankly, I believe it should be a direct correlation to value, not the value a client puts on it, but what you put on it. And I'm not talking about an hourly rate either. However, I'm not going to discount the purpose for having an hourly rate or even flat rates for a deliverable. But what I will ask is, Will the scope of work for the same product be the same for different clients? My personal experience says no, 
So should you price your work based on the worst case scenario? Personally, I find that to be unfair to well-prepared customers. When it comes to pricing, I can't emphasize enough the importance of checking out the Graphic Artist Guild Handbook on Pricing and Ethical Guidelines. This is a great starting point for someone struggling with pricing. What I can tell you is I price based on engagement. It's not a retainer. Some might call it a subscription. I tell a customer how long I believe the project or projects will take. I assign a periodic rate with an engagement level, and if it runs beyond that period and the engagement level adjusts one level or another, which it may for an unprepared client, they have the option to renew the so-called subscription. Of course, you can apply this theory by dictating a strict scope of work in your contract that dovetails into this method, which can employ iterative fees as well. Uh, I, I hope that helps. Lastly, we have uh, Francisco who wants to know what are the best ways to get inspired? What an awesome question. I, I find my inspiration in so many places. Sometimes it's just from reading and other times it's from forcing myself to draw and see where things go. However, I always create inspiration boards for all of my projects. I actually use Pinterest to do this. I start by finding elements that match the tone of whatever project I'm working on. This can be photos, graphics, or maybe even other finished designs. From there, I try to distill it down to what reflects the goals and objectives I'm attempting to forward. Eventually, it gets filtered down to a point that something just clicks. Of course, that doesn't mean my process will work for you. Sometimes just taking a walk, Listening to music or meditating will give you the clarity you need to help you find your motivation. I just want to say a quick thanks to everyone who wrote in. If you have questions of your own, I am so happy to try to answer them. Just drop a line at hello at brancholive.com. DM me through any of the social media platforms at brancholive. Or, of course, if you want, you can leave a message. You can call at US area code 650 265-7350. It's interview time. Today's guest hails from Austin, Texas. He's an overall badass, from thrashing our optic nerves with killer designs to demolishing our eardrums with his metal licks. He recently became the director of visual propaganda at Liquid Death Mountain Water. Before landing what could be described as this perfectly synergistic role, he was senior art director for GSD&M, where, among other things, he reactivated the vintage brand for Pizza Hut, giving it a sharper edge. While there, he also got to play with the Southwest Airlines Goodyear and Universal Studios brands, among many others. He's also had positions as art director for MRM McCann, where he worked with Verizon and Microsoft and the Barbarian Group doing work for Google, IBM, Intel, so many others. But he also got to work on the Pepsi brand during its Back to the Future promo fucking awesome stuff. Anyhow, he's originally from Northern Virginia. He went to Savannah College of Art and Design, where he kicked enough ass and took as many names to earn his fine arts degree in graphic design. And so uh, here's my interview with Alex Lang. Thanks for being on the show. Would you mind giving our audience a brief introduction? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, I just want to thank you so much for having me. 
Um, yeah, this is really cool, man. But uh, yeah, my name's Alex Lang. Um, I live in awesome Austin, Texas. I've been here for like three and a half years now, but um, I'm an art director, designer, illustrator, uh, augmented reality creator when I feel like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I previously worked in advertising for ooh, almost seven years. And <laughs> in a couple days, I will be moving in-house to uh, Liquid Death as their director of visual propaganda. So I'm going to be leading art direction and design over there. That's so awesome. So let's begin with the most complicated question. How did you end up becoming a designer? So in other words, when did you realize you had a knack for visually articulating ideas? Sure, man. It kind of, um, it's funny. It, I was kind of forced into it. Uh, when I was in high school and even in uh, middle school, uh, I was always really into music and I was in bands. Um, and when you're in a band, someone's got to come up with the logo. Someone's got to make the shirt, <laughs> the uh, all the merch, the gig posters, the MySpace page at the time. So someone had to do it and none of my other band members really wanted to. So I kind of just picked up, at the time it was Corel Paint Shop um, was my first design program. Pick, pick that up, uh, just did a whole bunch of tutorials online. And um, yeah, I started, I started making gig posters for my band and then, which kind of led to other bands. Um, and then, so that was kind of like where it began, right? And then I was always in school. I didn't really uh, care that much. Um, I was more just about music. So I was that guy in class who was like, scribbling death metal, like really spiky logos in his notebook, not paying attention at all. And uh, yeah, that kind of kick started this design thing. But at the time it was more just fun. You know, I was in a band, um, you know, making uh, what I later decided was like art direction for each band. Right. Cause you kind of got to be like, well, a metal band needs to look like this, like an indie rock band kind of looks like this. So I was kind of like prepping myself for what was about to come as a designer and art director, and I didn't even know it. So I was doing a lot of that, not doing great in school, but just good enough. That, um, I was able to start taking classes after high school, um, but I went into computer science because I didn't realize graphic design was a profession at that point. Uh, it was just something to do for fun. So I went into computer science um, pretty much because of making MySpace pages for bands. <laughs> I had to learn basic HTML and uh, that kind of led, I was like, oh, well, this is a, this could be a career. And then pretty quickly I learned that there, it wasn't uh, the type of creative that I wanted to do. So, uh, so, so yeah. how did you make the decision between pursuing a career in visual art versus slaying us with your metal riffs, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tried to pull off both. <laughs> that was the goal. Um, all through college, when I eventually went to SCAD, uh, Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia, um, that was the hope. Like, I could be in a band and design. Um, some of my favorite designers have done that. Um, the guitarist at Tisha Amore, um, the guitarist in Kill Switch Engage, uh, these are like awesome designers who do all the work for their own bands and they're also touring musicians. 
So that was kind of who I was looking up to. This was like John Baisley and Baroness, um, a huge influence. And I was like, if they could do it, I could do it. But what they had that I didn't have is um, they were a lot more talented at the music part. <laughs> yeah, so, but, you know, but your music clearly informs your visual aesthetic, right? So that kind of takes us to the the other piece, which is, so sometimes you have to work with clients and you have to make some concessions with with regard to your design aesthetic. How do you grapple with that? Do you still find a way to infuse your style into an existing brand language? Do you just acquiesce and stick with brand guidelines? Like, how do you reconcile with yourself? Yeah, it's, um, I think it, as designers and art directors can all agree is when you're in this field and you're working for clients now, and they might not be the type of clients, you know, that fit your personal aesthetic, like, uh, for instance, like I worked on Southwest Airlines for years, um, not metal at all, <laughs> pretty much the opposite, uh, Midwest Airline. So what it was, um, kind of what you have to do is become a chameleon designer where you, you should be able to pick up a style guide or a brand guideline for any brand and kind of run with it, right? Once you see a guideline or, you know, the color palette or the fonts that they use, you know, you kind of know. When you've been doing it for long enough, you're like, okay, so the CT button looks like this. It should go over there, you know, and you kind of like, you see the things you have to do in order to make it the brand. But then there's always opportunities. It doesn't matter what the client is to, to flex your own creative muscles. Um, a lot of times it doesn't work. <laughs> you got to kind of, you got to, you got to keep trying. But what I always like to do in a, when I'm concepting or coming up with a design for anything is give the client what they want, um, whatever it is, and then also give them a wild card, you know, and that, that wild card is sometimes I would say 90% of the time it doesn't go through. <laughs> but when, when it does, it's like the most amazing feeling. Cause you kind of feel like you put your personal stamp on a client um, and it's happened with Southwest Airlines and, and clients like that, where sometimes you just get lucky or it's the right brief or right project where the wild card idea or design uh, is just something they haven't thought of yet. But as long as you kind of tiptoe the edge of their brand guidelines and make sure that the foundation is there, mm -hmm. then uh, sometimes you can get away with it. And sometimes you get to shoot for the stars and they say, yeah, that's great. So that's awesome. Um, and speaking of, of companies like Southwest Airlines, you've gotten to work on some rather high profile shit, if you will. Um, I think that's the techn technical term, right? High profile shit. Um, do, you, <laughs> do you have a favorite story um, that you'd like to share? And, and again, um, in case you hadn't figured it out, totally cool to drop names. Um, only some of us will judge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, man. It's, I gotta say it's, it was probably working on Pepsi perfect. Um, when I was at the barbarian group in New York. So I was really just starting my advertising career. I think it was like maybe two years into it and I was a junior designer. Um, and then this project came, we, Pepsi was one of our clients 
And Pepsi does a lot of really rad stuff because whenever you're number two in any um, industry, like you have to work extra hard, right? You throw a lot of money um, because Coke doesn't need to flex. They're Coke. They're number one. They're going to be number one. But uh, so working with Pepsi, they're, they're really down to do crazy, crazy shit. And um, one of those was uh, Pepsi Perfect. So I don't know if you remember in Back to the Future 2, there's a scene where Marty McFly, when he goes to the future, he goes into the diner and he asks for a Pepsi. And then uh, like the, the diner counter like opens up and this weird futuristic Pepsi pops out of the table. Um, and it's a Pepsi Perfect and it, and it looks weird. It looks like it's from the future. Um, so on the anniversary of when Marty McFly goes into the future, which was like October might be butchering this, but like the 23rd of 2015. Um, when he goes into the future and gets that Pepsi, on the anniversary of that day, Pepsi was like, well, we got to do something for the Pepsi Perfect release, which is awesome because you don't get clients that often who like keep up with like random cool pop culture things like that. So they're like, what What could we do? And um, I was, I learned that this brief was happening in my agency and I forced myself onto it. Nice. They already had a team, a creative team. Um, these this awesome uh, duo who now are at Mother, uh, Claire and Emily, but uh, like amazing creatives, and they were leading it. And I I just forced them. I was like, dude, I love Back to the Future. Um, I'm a huge nerd for this stuff. So I kind of just tagged along. And one of the ideas that they had was let's go to New York Comic Con. And um, that's where we'll showcase the Pepsi Perfect. Like it's the perfect target audience. Like people will love it there. So we went there and we recreated the diner uh, from the movie as a giant booth at Comic-Con. Wow. And we had this, this uh, Doc and Marty uh, like impersonators there who didn't really look like them at all. <laughs> and, but we had to use them because they had the DeLorean. So we didn't really have a choice. <laughs> but it was still cool. And um, so we gave away all the Pepsi, uh, a bunch, like 500 Pepsi Perfects that day, um, just to like super fans who dressed up like uh, a character from Back to the Future. But the thing that's, that stood out for wait, me, I got wait. to be kind of like the person that, yeah. Did, did you get to keep one? Yeah, I have awesome. one. Uh, nice. It's somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> But the thing that stood out, like it was an awesome experience. And I was kind of the guy like behind, uh, at the booth giving away the Pepsi Perfects and kind of answering any questions anybody had. But I got, we had celebrities who would come to the booth and kind of do um, like a video spot for like IGN and kind of, uh, you know, they're present and they're making content at Comic-Con. And one of those person was Whoopi Goldberg. And for some reason, she came right up to me and shook my hand and said, this is an amazing experience. And I, I just owned it. And I said, thanks so much. Like, thank you. I'm glad you like it. I had really nothing to do with the booth, but I got to meet Whoopi Goldberg and shake her hand. And that, that will never happen again. Dude, that's better than an AIGA medal, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's close. <laughs> <laughs> So that's, that's awesome. So 
completely shifting gears from getting your BFA at SCAD and cutting your teeth in Savannah to working in New York City and now Austin. Um, and we already kind of touched on the fact that you're chilling in Austin, even though your new gig is is based out of California. So that's pretty great. Um, you have been a bit of a career gypsy, right? So do you think it's important to have the willingness as an artist to uproot and start fresh? And do you think that has impacted your perspective and possibly your aesthetic? And if I can stack one more question on top of that, what have you learned along the way as it relates to environments impacting your work? Yeah, totally, man. So when I was in Savannah, it was really the music scene was my biggest inspiration, right? That's actually why I went to SCAD is my some of my favorite bands at the time were from that area. Uh, Kailessa, Baroness, uh, Macedon was in Atlanta. Um, and what I took from that as a designer is like metal aesthetic, right? And then there's also like this weird thing that other places in, in the U.S. or even in the world doesn't have, which is that Southern like homegrown metal, like just gross stoner swap metal thing. And it's, it's a whole design aesthetic to itself. I mean, the metal genre is so expansive and every single part of all the subgenres have that they all have their own different design aesthetic. Um, and that was like what I really honed in on. And then when I moved to New York, um, it was, and I was living in Brooklyn and Bushwick, that's where I started really getting into graffiti and street art. And I was like, so inspired by it. I went to, um, you know, the Armory show in Brooklyn, saw all the amazing artists. And then I got huge into that. And it started playing into my personal uh, aesthetic and style where I was, a corp I was learning so much about these different street artists like Tristan Eaton and uh, Fail, you know, all the, all the big hitters. And so that started affecting everything I was doing too. But at the same time, it's merging with that weird, like Southern metal style at the same time. So it's kind of just like you're picking up influences wherever you go and it's happening subconsciously. And then when you go into design, you're just like, whoa, this is weird. This is not where I was planning on going. And then when I moved to Austin, it was, it was a similar thing, except what I find really interesting about Austin when I moved here, first thing I noticed is how much respect graphic design and branding it has. Everywhere you go is the most incredible um, signage and branding is off the chain. Like you'll see a dentist's office that has like this killer logo. You know, it looks like some draplin shit. And you're like, well, how is that possible? <laughs> and it's everywhere. Everybody has it. Um, so I think when I moved to Austin and the emphasis they have on design, you know, every restaurant has a killer menu. Uh, type is signage is super important, hand-painted signs. It kind of, um, you know, you pick up on all these little things. And then when you want to start designing as a part of a community in a new location, you know, you kind of want to dive into their art community they already have and like soak it up like a sponge. And uh, that's exactly what I did in Austin. And yeah, it's kind of, again, it's like an evolution of style 
of picking up all these things from different places I've lived. And uh, yeah, just diving into those worlds and learning as much as you can. So it, would you say it's something that you kind of set out to do to basically go from one place to another? I know that as as a military brat, if I can use that term, um, <laughs> you kind of grew up with the idea that, you know, you were your own island that could float from wherever it is that you needed to go. So anywhere you went was home, right? So do you think that is part of what has impacted your mentality? Like, do you, do you feel like you're uprooting yourself when you go from one place to another? Or, or does it just feel like you're immersing yourself into just a new vibe? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. It's definitely immersing. And I get honestly a little bored in a place if I've been there for long. Like when I was moving all around when my dad was in the military, we would live in a place for three years max. Like, and because of that, now I do feel uh, just it just gets a little bit stale um, in many senses, but design for sure. Um, and it's it's just fun to like really immerse yourself in different places and uh, just experience it. Like even when when I was in college, I did a um, a semester abroad in Hong Kong, and just because the opportunity arose. And I was like, well, I have to check that out. Totally. <laughs> but as as designer, you kind of, you see these places different than other people would, right? Like you pay attention to the design and say, like, and why do they do the things they do? Even advertising, you know, when you think in that space, like advertising in Asia is completely different. Um, so yeah, it's just like super interesting. I don't know if you necessarily need to completely uproot and move yourself to experience those things. But uh, I guess that's just what I seem to do. And and do you find that as you've gone from one place to another that it's impacted your process? In fact, actually, before I have you go down that path, let me ask you this. So when you set out to work on a project, can you talk to us about that process, how you begin that process, where you find your inspiration and like what that whole journey looks like? And then <laughs> I guess the whipped cream on top would be the, have you found your process change as your environments have changed? So like, I think I just asked you like five questions. <laughs> so, so I guess, I guess, I guess the first, the first question is when you set out to work on a project, can you talk to us about that process? Yeah, totally. So my process is, a, uh, I guess, a little bit unconventional after I've had more conversations with designers about what their process is, um, which honestly makes me question what I'm doing, but it seems to no, work no, no. out it's, so far. Yeah, it's working. It's working. <laughs> Stick with what you got. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of, I jump straight into Photoshop or Illustrator. Um, I'm, I use the, I'm so comfortable with those tools uh, because I don't have a, I never had a background in illustration or drawing. I didn't really start up except for metal logos in the notebook. That's about it. And I are you, of, a, are you a mouse and keyboard guy when you're using this or are you using a stylus? Yeah. Uh, mouse and keyboard <laughs> originally trackpad. Wow. Um, but those just became my, my sketching tools. Right. <laughs> so because I kind of, 
grew up with that and not drawing. I can fly through an idea really quick in Illustrator or Photoshop. Um, and through doing this now for however many years, you kind of, you start to learn like what works and what doesn't. You don't feel the need to kind of like go down a path or an idea um, as far anymore hmm. down that road because you've kind of, you've experimented enough over the years to kind of learn like, okay, that's not going to work. I can already tell that's not going to work. Um, so you kind of start narrowing down your options in your head. And so I'll just, I'll try to just blow it out maybe to like 50% of what the design's going to be. Um, and I can, I can kind of tell like if it's working, if it's not working, I know what the final products eventually going to look like if I keep going down this design idea path. And, um, that's usually like the process, which is tough because, you know, when you work with clients or anybody and you have to deliver a design for them, uh, they're going to want to see sketches, right? They're going to want to see, they don't want to see that 50% done so I never give them of, that. I, I always give them it. If it's not finished, they're not seeing it. So, yeah. it, and, and, you know, like, like you said, designers do things differently. Um, obviously your approach totally different from mine, right? Like I, but I also come from an older school, right? I mean, when I was in art school, not only did you pick up the pencil first, you also then did paste ups and amber lifts and ruby lifts and press type right and and put it on a fucking stat camera <laughs> in order to create films we are in a completely different place today which is probably a lot closer to where you started out than where i started out right desktop publishing was just becoming a thing when i was starting to cut my teeth if you will um so yeah, like with regard to how you you culminate your process, right? How how does that journey actually how, how does that journey end for you? Yeah. So if I'm doing my own personal design, um I kind of through the process, I kind of do the the draplin technique of where he'll design um He'll, he'll do a move in Illustrator, right? Like one move. He'll move the anchor point like an inch. And then he'll copy and paste that somewhere else in Illustrator. And then he'll do another move. And then at that point, he has like 20 different designs. But every step of the way of how you got to, um, you know, where you end up. And for me, it's a I do that technique because it's pretty interesting because you can always go too far, you know, as designers, we look at, we're like, oh, this needs to be simplified or this is too simple. But when you have every step of the way in front of you in an Illustrator artboard, um, it kind of shows you like how you got to where you did. And at what point did you go too far? Right. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of, you you know, when you did, what, as a designer, you're like, does this look good or does this not look good? And that is really like the end question, right? Sure. And you can always keep going. Uh, but usually I find if you just go too far after you've said it's good, uh, you're going to have to rein it back in at some point. So that's really like the process of 
how I get to the, the final stage. But I think when you're talking about how, you know, we come from different, uh, you know, I don't want to say eras because that's serious, <laughs> <laughs> from, from different backgrounds, I think that what always is going to be the same, even in the future for future designers, is the fundamentals, right? Mm -hmm. It's typography, color theory, and composition. And composition is so important. And when you know those, especially composition and layout, it stops you from making mistakes or going too far down a path, like I was talking about before, than you should. Because you have an understanding of what looks right and what doesn't. Is something too busy or is it not busy enough? Is the negative space working? Is it not working? And do you think that sensibility for you has changed throughout the years? Do you think that, um, you know, not to harp on this idea of you being a, a, a fucking career gypsy, <laughs> but like for moving from place to place and experiencing these different environments, I mean, that's the the key here is not about the fact that that you've gone from one locale to another. It's that you have experienced these different cultures, you've experienced these different cities, right? You've experienced these different aesthetics that you find in each city. I mean, it's what makes them each new, uh, unique. So do you find that that has informed how you perceive composition, etc.? I think it does. I think it gives you a, a new uh, perspective on a des design aesthetic that you've never seen before. But I think across the board, no matter where you go or the designs you see, like you'll always have composition and it works on everything. Um, I mean, of course, there's a trend happening right now with anti-design or brutalist, which completely throws my theory out the window. <laughs> but I think across the board that it'll always stay the same. You know, there is a moment where it's working or it's not working and all design aesthetics really have that. And I think it's all grounded in composition. I totally agree. And it and it's so funny because I, I've had conversations with people like Art Chantry, who he's a grunge designer, for lack of a better term. His stuff is very hand done and uh, and I identify myself as more of kind of in the Swiss theory. And he gives me a lot of shit for, for grids. And I'm like, dude, you start with the grid and then you break the grid. You even do it. And, uh, and, and, and he just, he and I kind of went back and forth <laughs> on whether or not that's true. He's like, yeah, but I don't draw a fucking grid. And I'm like, I, I don't either. I mean, I could hit the button on my computer to show me a grid. And he's like, yeah, but I don't even use a fucking computer. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but you know, you still have that visual sensibility and, and whether or not you're playing the rule of thirds game, you might just automatically understand it and apply it. So when you actually reach the finish line in your design journey, God, I hate using the word over and over again, but it really is kind of this, this path that you go down when you end up at that final result. So when you reach the finish line, 
Um, what do you find is most satisfying, like from client approvals or seeing your stuff out in the wild uh, or, or at, at Comic-Con or uh, wherever the Pepsi thing was? Forgive my terrible memory. Um, what aspects of your career make you want to celebrate? Yeah, it's for me, I really got the first gratification of what I was doing. Um, was cool or slightly impactful. Um, it comes in different in different ways depending on what I'm working on. For a lot of the band work that I do, or just uh, music gig posters, that kind of thing, it's when I see someone wearing the shirt, right? It's like I'll whenever I do merch, I'll just stand by the merch table and I'll just watch and see what people are buying. And when they buy that shirt, that's like the moment, right? Or or when I go to the show the next week and someone showed up in that shirt, that's like, that's the best. And when it comes to like, uh, you know, advertising work, uh, client work, I think it's when you see it out in the wild. Um, it's It's kind of harder to get that personal, you know, um, appreciation when you see somebody interacting with it. That's why a lot of the work that I uh, like to do is, you know, augmented reality because you see people messing around with it and then they'll post it on Instagram or Facebook or wherever. You kind of get that uh, they're sharing the thing that you made. You know, it's kind of the same reaction as when you see someone in the shirt, right? Um, but yeah, I think it really depends on the work. Cause I don't think we're ever going to get gratified when we make like a banner, right? <laughs> you don't see the banner out in the real world. You don't get excited when you're making it. Wait, but you don't get excited when you see a web banner <laughs> that you designed. <laughs> I don't even see web banners. <laughs> I absolutely have the ad blogger. <laughs> yeah. It's too funny. Yeah. With client, with client work, it's a little different, but uh, you can still be gratified. I mean, I remember the first time, not to name drop, um, but the first time I saw something I did and out of home was for the Pepsi Perfect thing um, when it was in New York and just plastered huge on the wall. And I did the same thing I do when I'm at the at the show where I just stand by the wall that it's plastered on like 14 feet up and I'll just watch people like walk by and look at it. And sometimes you get people who stop and take a photo, you know? So yeah, it's, I think that's really the moment when you see the person interact, you don't get to see it every time, but when you do, it's pretty special. Cool. So obviously that's going to change a little bit with your new role, right? So now you're moving into a new role, which I, I really would love for, for you to, to tell me a little bit more about um, what, what that actually entails. Um, but so instead of getting to interact with an array of brands, you are going to be like the in-house guy that kind of guides things along from, from a brand experience perspective. And so as it relates to process and where you find fulfillment as a designer, what do you expect to change? And well, what do you expect to be the same? Yeah, it's it's hard to answer because I have no idea really what I'm jumping into. I have a sense, 
but it's, I've never worked in-house before. Um, I've never worked on just one client. But I think what's different about Liquid Death is that I am so completely aligned with this brand. Yeah, you are. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so perfect. <laughs> it's everything that I, I didn't know that those illustrations, those death metal logos were going to come to anything when I was drawing them as a kid. And now like a weird freak brand has randomly shown up over the couple of years. That is, is exactly what I want to do. And it honestly feels like a brand that I could have started myself. And so really quickly, really quickly, if I can, I just want to diverge just a tiny bit to tell our listeners about liquid death. So, um, so if I, if I, I, I think it was uh, Bogusky who who said it actually best that basically what you would see are these ex gamers drinking from Monster and drinking from Red Bull and all these other energy drinks, but there wasn't actually an energy drink in there. It was actually water, and so it made complete and total sense to just flip water on its head. First off, water primarily comes in these you know, one-time use, single-use plastics, which are obviously terrible for the environment, whereas aluminum cans are predominantly recycled, like it is one of the most recyclable uh, things that you can basically package these days. And so that's what Liquid Death is. It's basically this like death metal brand in terms of aesthetic that contains the most pristine spring water you can get, right? And of course, being in a can, it is as earth-friendly as it gets next to actually sticking your head in spring water. Okay, so I just wanted to make sure that our listeners know that what we're talking about is spring water and the way it's packaged, it's, it is so perfect for that ex-gamer mentality where fuck these energy drinks they're drinking water let's not let's just tell them the truth and of course if there was ever an extreme uh drink it's water right like when was last time you heard of someone drowning in in monster energy drink it's just not something that happens That's perfect, man. <laughs> All right. So, 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 tell me more about the role and 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 how you expect to uh, to find fulfillment. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's um, yeah. So I'm I'm coming in, um, and I'm just going to be like the art direction design lead, right? And they already do amazing stuff, Liquid Death. So I'm coming into a brand that is very much established itself. Um, in terms of their aesthetic, um, what they're doing, their target audience, uh, you name it. And they're really a, an e-commerce first brand as well. So they're very much aligned with, you know, internet culture. And I think the biggest thing that they go for there is humor. Like it, it has to be funny. We're dealing with, um, everybody who works there, I guess now including myself is ex advertising guys. And we've all been there where we can't do the cool idea, right, with the client. Um, you want to do that crazy shit. 
that you came up with when you were like really high and, and then, you know, you go to present it and you just get blank stares, but you know, in your heart, it would be super cool if it wasn't, you know, some weird thing you were doing for Southwest airlines or some like <laughs> capital one, you know? And so what's great about liquid death is that the guys who made it are all those people. They're all the ones who have those just insane ideas during the meetings that just get shot down. And everyone's like, what are you doing, dude? Just deliver the TV spot. <laughs> and, <laughs> so and they're taking the CEO, like a, a former creative director too. Yeah. Yeah. He was at, um, he's been at a bunch of places. Uh, last, what he was doing was that donor in LA uh, working on Netflix. So he did a bunch of like the stranger things promos when, uh, when that show first came out. So he's doing a lot of stuff like that. And um, yeah, it's, I mean, this is a brand that is rooted in ridiculousness. Like the product itself is ridiculous. But when you actually like think about the messaging and the mission behind it, it's, there's, there's so much truth to it, you know? And when, when you're advertising guys and you're like, we can do anything because this is our brand, we are the client, like just really special things happen. So I definitely encourage all the listeners to go check out the spots that they've created. Um, it's mind boggling. There, it involves waterboarding. It has, um, there's a spot that was animated by um, the guy who did Mr. Pickles, where we have like a, a muscular, like undertaker style guy uh, with a can for a head. He's like cutting people's heads off. Um, it, it's it really is, balls to the wall. Yeah. I mean, it, first off, the, 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 the live action one was just spectacularly hilarious. It basically takes the, the Orbit's gum concept, elevates it and flips it on its head and then the 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 cartoon one is holy holy crap it's incredibly um alarming <laughs> and uh and and you're just like wow that's that's intense stuff um but i got to say thank you so much you're awesome this was awesome and um do you have any parting words or mystical words of wisdom you care to impart to our listeners yeah, man, it's so I was thinking about this earlier and how like Liquid Depth kind of came about and how I got on their radar, as well as um, a couple other agencies I've worked for in the past is the work is definitely a big part of it, um, like what you're doing. And it, of course, like, you know, the, the word no one wants to hear side hustles. It's a thing, you know, <laughs> it's hard to have side hustle when you're working those 70 hour weeks, but you know, sometimes you need a release to go do um, your own thing and not work on, you know, a client. But the biggest thing that I found um, that really grabs people's attention and gets them going is um, it, that opens you up to like cooler work. You know, like I've been that guy who was just sitting working on Capital One Southwest Airlines, um, you know, these pretty monotonous brands where their style guides are like, you know, to a T it's, it's so strict. And what I found that really like opens you up to give you different opportunities is your portfolio and the way you present the work. Um, for the longest time, I had really just whack work in there that 
uh, I wasn't interested in, no one else, um, no one else would be interested in, but it's the way that you present it. And if you can throw in your own personality into the work, it really helps uh, show people who you are as a designer. So your work might not represent you as a whole because it's representing Capital One, right? And I don't know who would want to be Capital One as a person, but <laughs> you get to, um, if you can inject a bit of yourself into your portfolio and kind of maybe like even poke fun a little bit at what you're doing, it really shows who you are and the kind of work you want to do. And you still get to flex a little bit. So what I always tell people is, if your portfolio is flat and simple, like just a square space, white background, thumbnails of your projects, if, you're, if your portfolio is flat and simple, then you're flat and simple. And if, if, that is, if that's what you want, then by all means, go for it. But this is a representation of you. And this is like, this is your website. And why would you want to be perceived that way? If you want to do the kind of work that you want to do that you see other people um, doing at like agencies or, or design firms that are doing like cooler work, then, you know, show that you could be that guy or that girl. Be, be that person. And you could do it in your about section because the about section is you. Design the hell out of your about section. Put just crazy shit in there, you know, but that's where you tell your story. And even in the projects that you work on, inject a little bit of humor in there or like a little bit of extra design. You know, once these design projects are done, they do. And the finals came out. If it's not what you wanted it to be, you know, you still can change it. Like it's your design portfolio. It doesn't have to be what's shipped out the door. You can do whatever you want to it. Like put all the, all the designs that got killed, throw them in there. Like, but just remember uh, your portfolio is you and the work represents you. So just make sure to have a personality in that portfolio. Love it. So good. Thanks again for coming by. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, man. My pleasure. Thanks again to Alex Lang for joining Brand of Brothers. You can visit his website, destroyanddesign.com to learn more. Wisdom Nuggets. Now it's time to talk about something that has happened in my decades-long career and, well, what I learned from it. Have you ever wondered how to deal with an overly discerning client? Yeah? Well, me too. Over the decades, I've had a lot of lessons when it comes to what to show clients, how, and when. Speaking of when... When I got my start, I worked at a bunch of design firms and ad agencies, and they all seemed to have one thing in common. They really loved to show progress and options. In retrospect, I've come to realize these are all rookie mistakes. The AEs, the account executives, they were never that much older than me. But apparently it's a relative thing when you're 20-something and they're 30-something. You're like, oh, gosh, you have so much experience. Anyhow, and, and, and then you discover the creative directors. They don't really give two shits anyhow. And the agency partners, they were generally focused on operations and business development and stuff like that. So it was the account executives 
who it turned out knew very little about creative development and visual communications to begin with, if at all. These were effectively kids with marketing degrees or business degrees, not communications nor fine arts degrees. Frankly, I didn't think anything of it. I just accepted it as a normal part of the process, especially since it was the same method from agency to agency, firm to firm, and one location to the next. But it wasn't until I started the branding agency I own today that I discovered there could be another way. When I began the company, I used the same process as before. I would walk clients through the whole everything, every step of the way. We'd review the creative briefs and edit them together. Then we would review all the sketches and make modifications and selections together. We would show them the mechanicals mid-process. You get the picture. It didn't take long for me to realize this was all wrong. Why the fuck would I be showing these people aspects of the process? They're not designers. They're not communicators. Well, they they may be marketing directors or EVPs of sales and marketing, but their wheelhouse is not how to visually connect messaging and tone and connect all of that storytelling with the audience. We're the experts, not them. Plus, there were times the customer simply lacked the ability to envision what that final product would be. What would it look like? While we were hired based on our portfolio, among other criteria, we were fired a few times, too, because the client just couldn't see how everything would evolve to the levels they had expected. The last time that happened would be the last time that happened. But we still continued to show them options. I don't know why. Sometimes we would show them dozens of logo concepts. They were looking for something that they would only know it when they saw it. I can't tell you how many times this bit us in the ass. There would be excessive scope creep with no prospect for compensation. Obviously, we've learned how to deal with this now, right? There are iterative fees, etc. But as you can see, this can make working with a discerning client quite messy. So what's the solution? Is there a solution? The short answer is yes and no. It's critical to note sometimes you're just not going to please everyone. But your clients should also be reminded through actions they're hiring you because you possess something they want. So what that means is it's important to project yourself as being an expert. After all, on one level or another, you are or will need to become one while you're working on each of these creative projects. If you don't passionately problem solve and understand your client and their clients, you're doing everyone involved a massive disservice, especially yourself. Okay. So back to the solution. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm not saying it's the solution. I'm saying it's a solution. And it's generally a solution that works. Just like before, keep record of every step of the process. Then show the customer how you got to the solution. That's right. You do the same shit as you did before, but you just do it all at once. You present everything as a cohesive story. 
remind them what the project is, explain the purpose of the project, detail the rationale that leads you to each step, show how you illustrate the solutions. It's really that simple. Let's say you would ordinary uh, let's say you would ordinarily show progress to the customer every few days and have everything to them in a few weeks, right? Instead, tell them you'll have the presentation ready when it's done. So in that hypothetical instance, a few weeks. A good client will accept this. A better client will embrace this. After all, it's difficult for most of us to understand the what without an explanation of the why and the how. It's closing time. Well, that takes us to the end of this installment, and I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode of Brand of Brothers, brought to you in part by Adobe XD, How Designers UX. Learn more at adobe.com slash XD. This episode was written, edited, produced, and hosted by me, Doug Berger, along with music by Andy Slatter and Studio Etude. Find more details about the show on our website at brandshowlive.com or on the social media channels at brandshowlive. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you didn't, please share it with your family and enemies. Either way, please leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. You know, if it lets you do that kind of thing. Feel free to tell us what you liked or how we can improve by dropping us a line at hello at brandshowlive.com. You can also hit us up on social media at brandshowlive. You can even call us and leave a message at U.S. area code 650-265-7350. And if you really want to help, please take the survey at brandshowlive.com slash survey so we can convince potential sponsors we're better than we really are. You can also support the show by buying Brand of Brothers gear from our website, brandshowlive.com, or by becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash brandshowlive. Until next time, branding wishes and marketing dreams.